1: There's a story about a father of a vacation and family who came across a large sign that read, Road Closed, Do Not Enter. However, the man proceeded around the sign because he was confident at the same time that uh, that sign really didn't mean anything. His wife was resistant to the adventure, but there was no turning back for this persistent road warrior. After a few miles of successful navigation, he began to boast. "'about his great gift of discernment. "'His proud smile was quickly replaced with humble sweat "'when the road led to a washed-out bridge. "'So he promptly turned the car around "'and retraced his tracks back to the main road. "'When they arrived to the original warning sign, "'he was greeted by large letters on the back of the sign "'that said, "'Welcome back, stupid.'" Sometimes we have confidence in certain things that we think we know better about. There are certain things in life that we have certain confidence about, or we can see, or we, we've told ourselves that we have certain confidence about, that nobody else can change our mind, and it is a hill that we will die on, only to find out later on that hill really wasn't worth dying on. The question I have for you this morning is this. What are you willing to fight for? What causes are you fighting for? And are they good causes? Now, of course, you're thinking, if I'm fighting for a cause, of course it's good, or I wouldn't be fighting it at all. But a lot of times, like I said, we end up like this guy. We're fighting for this cause. We know we're right, and we come to the end of ourselves or the end of the situation or that cause, and we realize it was all in vain. What are you fighting for? What is it in your life that's worth fighting for? What hills are you willing to die on, and which ones are you not? Before we get into the discussion of our passage today, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter six. I'll give you a chance to turn in your Bibles. If you're at home, welcome. You could turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter six. I'm going to be reading in a little bit from the New Living Translation. But right before we get to uh, verse eleven, we're going to be looking at verses eleven through twenty-one. Paul is instructing Timothy, um, who is somewhat of a protege of, of Paul's. So. We have mentors and mentees or protégés. And so Paul is mentoring Timothy, who he sees as a son or like a son in the faith. Somebody he's poured his life and energy into. It's not that he's the only one, but he's the one that we do have that he's poured a lot of time and energy into. And so he's instructing Timothy, who has now been given charge over the church at Ephesus. Now, the church at Ephesus has a letter written to it by Paul called Ephesians. And also we learn about the church at Ephesus in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. It is one of the seven churches. And if you remember, it's the one church that had lost its first love. Okay, so just to give you a bigger background and picture of what's going on here, Timothy is young. There are older people at the church in Ephesus. There are elders that are quite a bit older than, than Timothy is. And so, and so Timothy has now been given the charge of this church, but there's false teaching in the church. And what is the false teaching that's happening in the church at Ephesus when Timothy's there? Well, it's this. There are these, uh, these men who have gone around... Actually earning a living by being preachers of the gospel, but not just preachers of any gospel it's a twisted gospel it 's a gospel that of that name it claim it kind of stuff it 's a gospel of this this great knowledge which we call Gnosticism what is Gnosticism i 'm not going to get into a whole lot of that it 's just these these men and and some women in that day and age believed that God had imparted to them a new knowledge of old things and that if nobody listened to them, then they are in essence rejecting God. Be careful when you have somebody who stands on a stage like this or is in an influential position of authority that says, I have a new thing That has never been told before. Now that sounds weird. You might say, well, we're all about new things. Well, if the new thing doesn't correspond to the old thing, meaning the scripture, then it is not a new thing at all. It is a corrupt thing that will lead to destruction. So what are you fighting for? Are you fighting for new things? Are you fighting for the consistency of the truth, which spans time and generations, So what's going on in Timothy's day is there's these preachers going around in name only. They're going around in Jesus' name, supposedly preaching the gospel and getting rich off of the backs of those um, that are willing to give them money. It's all a money-making scheme. I know that doesn't happen in the church today. It never happened here, I'm sure. Um, But you know what I'm talking about, right? It's all about the almighty dollar. And they are earning a living. And, and right before we get to the passage we're going to look at today, Paul talks about the love of money. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil, but what does he say? For the love of money is the root of all evil. And what had started to happen is there were people saying, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And there's these people in authority that are saying, basically, this is a sign of success. If you have more and then you are blessed with more and more, then that means God's favor is on you. And if you're cursed and you're not blessed, then that means God's favor is not on you. We talked about this a little bit in my class on Thursday night this past week. We get this corrupt and twisted perspective that if your life is going great, then God's blessings are on your life. That you are in the will of God. You are perfectly aligned with his purposes. But if things aren't going great for you, then obviously God is punishing you. That's a lie of the enemy. But see, that's a lie that's not only been perpetuated in our day and age. That's a lie that's been perpetuated since well before Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. So without further ado, let's get into our message today. First Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 11. <clears throat> but you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. He's talking about the false teachings and trying to, to profit off of the backs of others in ministry. He says, pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Do you notice there's similarity to that list and another list in one of Paul's letters? See, Paul actually has a a, a pattern of redundancy in a lot of his letters. We see in Colossians and in Ephesians, he has has laid out instructions for the family. We also see in Timothy, with this pattern of Scripture, he's not giving you an exhaustive list, but in Galatians chapter 5, he also gives us a set of virtues. You know what those are? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here we see a mirrored image, slightly different, but along the same lines. Okay? Now he goes on to verse 12. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Now the New Living Translation says the true faith, but many of your translations may say fight the good fight of faith. I like the New Living Translation only because there are different kinds of faith out there. You can have faith in the brakes on your car. You can have faith in other people or things. But he's talking here about what specific kind of faith. The true faith. What is true faith? Well, true faith is that which is rooted in Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about to Timothy. Don't put your faith in money or things or assets or material goods or other people. Put your faith in Christ. He is the true faith In whom you should be rooted. He says, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. What is he holding tightly to? That's not what's he holding tightly to? Eternal life. Some of you have read that. Eternal life. I think some of us are holding tightly to this life. I think we struggle that if we can't make our way in this life the way the world expects us to, then we are flat out horrible, ruinous people. But see, Paul knew that in instructing Timothy, the successes of this world are not what you're setting out to achieve. It's the success of kingdom causes. That's why I'm asking you to fight the good fight of faith and to... And to uh, to hold tightly to that eternal life. See, if I'm holding tightly to eternal life, it doesn't mean that this life isn't important, but it makes this life all the more enriching if I have a perspective that is above the problems of this world. If I hold tightly to eternal life, I'm focused on the beyond, but living in the here and now with that sense of hope, And goodness, knowing that no matter what this world throws at me, I'm still going to be standing in the end. Okay? And that's what he's talking about to Timothy. Because he knows he's going into the bullpen in Ephesus. He's saying, Timothy, you're going to be chewed up and spit out if you're not careful. I want you to hold tightly to eternal life. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize, as he might say in another letter. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Jesus Christ, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. That's hard. When life throws you for a loop, and, and you, you feel like you can't stand on your own two feet, or emotionally you're just racked, mentally you're drained, Physically, you are just zapped of every amount of energy. You just don't feel like you could stand. You don't feel like you can really obey because you've obeyed up to this point and look what it's gotten you. You know how many people I have tell me, Pastor, I feel like I'm doing the right things and I'm living the right kind of life. I'm sold out for Christ, but I keep getting hit over and over and over again. I don't know how much one person can take or one family can take. Or maybe you know somebody like that in your life and they've been hit. It's like like going to the ocean and standing on the beach and walking out and the waves are a little bit more stout and you go out just far enough where you're still on ground but the force of the waves is enough to knock you off your feet and you just stand back up again only to get hit again and get knocked down until you're sputtering for air. Do you ever feel like that? You're like, I'm obeying everything and I'm still getting knocked down. Fight the good fight of faith. Why do you think he says it's a fight? Because it doesn't come easily. I'm getting ahead of myself. Those are in my notes. So let me go on. Okay. Uh, Obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus comes again. For at just the right time... Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He alone can never die. And he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. This harkens back to the story of Moses, who's up on Mount Sinai, who says, Lord, I just want to see you face to face. And the Lord says, no, you can't, because if you see me face to face, you'll die. But I'll do this for you. I'll hide you right here in the cleft of the rock. Go over there. I'm going to cover the entrance. We don't know how he covered it. There was just a block where he couldn't see And really, the way the Hebrew language reads is, the way it's translated into English is that he got to see God's backside. Actually, that's really not true. What he got to see was after God had passed, the afterglow and effect of his passing. He didn't see God. He just saw the remnant effect of what it had on the surroundings when he pulled back the veil from the cleft of the rock. It is a light so brilliant uh, Tim Mackey and uh, the Bible Project has a, uh, has a video on holiness. If you get a chance, go to thebibleproject.com or .org. I can't remember which org or .com it is. But check it out on holiness. And they kind of equate this holiness of God is like uh, the, the sun. Our sun in the center of our solar system. The closer you get to our sun, what does it do? It burns. You can stay safely 92 million miles away, Earth, just in case you're curious, right? You can stay safely here, but you can still get sunburnt, right? Even here. But if you were to get in a spaceship and the closer you get to the sun, what's going to happen? It'll consume whatever you're in and who you are. Is the sun evil for doing that? Is it bad? No, that's just the nature of The atomic processes that cause the sun to be in constant explosion to generate the light. Now imagine we sinful people marred by sin in this world. We approach God much like we approach the sun in a spaceship. We can only get so close before we get consumed by it. Moses, you can't see me face to face because you'll die. And then what do we see here? What did Jesus do for us? He took our punishment on the cross, dealt with sin once and for all, and says here, salvation is freely offered to you. You believe in me and follow me, and I will give you eternal life. So now we who are Christians who are children of God are able to approach the throne room of grace with confidence that we can step into that arena because of what Christ has done for us if we believe in him and follow him faithfully. That is the good news. We don't have to have an animal sacrifice to forgive us of our sins. We actually had God become human step into that arena for us once and for all, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Our part is receiving that sacrifice, saying, I believe, and yes, I'm willingly accept what you did for me. Because quite frankly, you can't do it in your own strength and power. And then we can step into that space because we have the covering and the protection of the blood of Christ on us. All right, that's a whole different sermon for another time. I got way off on a tangent, forgive me. All right, here we go. He alone can never die. He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever, amen. Now, verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. How many of you agree with that? Back in March and shut down in your businesses or the places where you work and you got laid off. You're riding high. The economy was great. And then, boom, you get hit, right? The money is so unreliable. I don't even look at my retirement portfolio because I'm still way too young to have anything amassed in that thing. But I did kind of take a peek at it back during the beginning of all this mess and cried a little in my heart. But some of you that are right on the verge of retirement or in the midst of retirement, it's a devastating blow, isn't it? What is Paul teaching Timothy? Don't don't trust in this kind of stuff. It's there one minute, gone the next. Their trust, he goes on to say, the people uh, to, to, to teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable, their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, he goes on to say, they will be storing up treasure, uh, their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. So the key point really quickly this morning is this. The good fight of faith results in eternal life. The good fight of the true faith results in eternal life. You cannot fight a better for a better cause or you cannot fight a better battle than fighting for the true faith in Jesus Christ and holding tight to eternal life. Now, How does he do this? What does Paul tell him? The first thing he tells him is to run from evil, pursue righteousness and a godly life. Run from evil. According to the Life Application uh, Bible Commentary, it says, Jesus made it very clear that the elimination of evil from our lives will last only if the vacuum is filled with good. Let me say that again. The evil that is eliminated from our lives when we come to Christ and get that forgiveness will last only if the vacuum is filled with good and i'm going to say filled with Christ when an evil this is Matthew chapter 12 43 through 45 Jesus is saying listen when an evil spirit leaves a person it goes into the desert seeking rest and finding none then it says i'll return to the person i came from So it returns and finds its former home empty, the person, swept and in order. They're in order because Christ has reordered their lives. And then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they only enter the person and live there. And so the person is worse than he was before. That will be the experience of this evil generation, Jesus says. Why is that? Because we think Christ is a one and done thing. I come to him, I got saved when I was five, or I got saved when I was 12. Have you been living for him? Have you completely surrendered your life to him, your job, your marriage, your kids? Have you surrendered everything to him, and has he become your all in all? See, the evil generation in which we live, in which Paul says, actually continues to perpetuate and exist because we live in a fallen and broken world. Believes we, We just want the quick fix, the push of the button, so that we can get things right in our lives and then just move on and go about our normal routines. See, that's not what Jesus is about. That's not a relationship with Christ is all about. It's about complete surrender. In a daily dying to self, taking up our cross and following him. I say that until I'm blue in the face. The truth of the matter is, it's not about going back to normal. And I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about from death to life. From old creation to new creation. I'm talking about this regeneration of what is dead, me, into a new creation that subsists because of the life-giving power of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. See, we can focus on those things in this world that suck the life out of us. And we can complain to God that things aren't going our way. But when we do, we miss the point. Because things weren't meant to go our way, they're meant to go His way. And if we're going His way, sometimes it's going to require us to sacrifice a lot more than we ever imagined. It's not easy, it's hard. I wrote in this point right here, you cannot fight the good fight of faith and, excuse me, you cannot fight the good fight of faith and give in to evil. It just, they're, they're two, they're, they're counter opposites. What are the specific evil things he's talking about here? I could give you some, some off the wall things, but really he's focused around this concept of money in this whole chapter. So let me, let me pull some of this out. Um, he's talking about the entrapment of money and material things. The draw of money and what it can buy is completely alluring. Trust me, I know. <clears throat> I love gadgets and gizmos and tools. I love books. You come into my office, I have a ton of books. I love coffee. I love what money could buy. I do. There are times in our personal budget, Sarah Lee and I could tell you, where we just want to go out to eat, but uh, we got to wait till payday. What well, could we, I don't know, is there a way we could, uh, let's dump out the change jar. Maybe we could, you know, and, and it's not that we have to. We have food at home. But do you see what, what I'm talking about? Something as subtle and as simple as that. And again, I'm not saying these things in and of themselves are wrong, but it's alluring what money can buy you. Isn't it? And this allurement starts simply but can manifest itself in some very ugly ways to the point to where it becomes, begins to control you. How many of us wouldn't like to have more money? How many, if, you, if you had an opportunity to have more money, would you have it? <laughs> yes, we would, right? And again, money's not the evil thing. The draw of money and what it can buy is completely alluring it could buy us bigger houses, new cars, give us status, prestige, recognition. It can give us attention and all that our heart desires. Even the desire to have just enough to satisfy us would be great. I don't need a big mansion. I don't need a big house or great fancy cars. I don't mind buying used cars. I don't mind. But it's still alluring, isn't it? There's something that still, if we're not careful, can, can suck us in even to just enough we get caught in this trap ever so easily and our focus shifts from the provider to the things that money can provide and that's the problem there therein lies the problem and the root of the issue where money isn't evil but the love of it becomes evil okay so, God longs to give us the desires of our hearts. But let me, let me just say this before moving on to the next point. God longs to give us the desires of our hearts, but our desires must first become His desires in order for this to happen. Because we've, we've taken this uh, so far out of context. This idea to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. What do you think? Okay, so if I go to church, I pay my tithe, I do all these good things, and I serve in some capacity, I teach Sunday school or the kids, or, or I make, you know, dinners for this family that's coming home from the hospital. If I, do, if I do that, then that's good. And it is good. So we think, if I'm doing all that, then God's got to give me good things. That's not what that passage means. We've so misinterpreted and misapplied that verse of Scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things will add to you. If I'm seeking God first in His righteousness, what do you think is going to be happening inside of me? I'm going to be becoming more like Him. My desires, which are for Him and for righteousness will begin to mold and shape me into this further new creation that he has transformed me to be through Christ. What do you think happens to my desires when I seek him first and his righteousness? I change. My desires change. So what is he saying? If your desires change to become more like my desires, yeah, I'll give you what you want. We've we've, we've done this. I'm seeking him and his righteousness, and I don't get that sports card. That's my desire, my promotion, that job that I applied for, that good grade on that test that's going to make or break me. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, then all these things. You have to understand that doesn't come without a change of heart and perspective and a transformation inside of each and every one of us so that our desires become his desires. His desires. And his desires for us are one and the same. Okay, number two. Fight the good fight for true faith. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite past authors, says, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. Let me say that again. God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. You catch that? I see this way too often in the church and in believers' lives. Is that we're only planning to do that which we can do in and of our own strength. But see, God doesn't want us just to do what we can do. He wants us to do what he can do. And in order to do what He can do, we have to surrender everything to Him and be willing to risk even our reputations to set a goal beyond ourselves that we can't accomplish in our own strength and power to allow Him to show up. Does this make sense? In the same vein of thought, Oswald Chambers writes, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means... Whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. He goes on to write, I love this, there are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. What is purified by the fires of a furnace? Metal. What becomes stronger when you continue to reheat and mold it and reheat and mold it? Steel. We live in a steel community. We should know this. There have been forges and, and steel mills. And what happens when you continue to purify metal through, the, through the, uh, the, the process of fire? But we can't handle just the heat of a small candle flame, spiritually speaking. See, the problem, I think, in the American church... No, I'm not going to overgeneralize this. The problem in the American church is... We've so made the gospel palatable... that we've neutered it of its effectiveness. Do you catch what I'm saying? When I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... and the gospel of Jesus Christ, do you know what I find in there? Things that hit me square between the eyes, step on my toes... Sucker punch me in the gut. Just let's narrow it down just to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the great sermon on the Mount. We did a sermon series on this three years ago. And we spent about 17 weeks in that sermon series going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do you know what we found out? He didn't pull any punches. Jesus was in your face. He wasn't trying to be rude about it, but he was being matter of fact. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. And you know what we notice about his truth compared to the world's truth? It's opposite. It's revolutionary. It's upside down. You want to be the greatest? You have to become the least. You think adultery is bad. What do you do with your thoughts? The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. The poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. You think you should hate your enemy? No, 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 no. You've got to love your enemy. Pray for them. Pray for their well-being. See, this is why the Christian life is not easy. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount says, The road to destruction is wide. But the road to eternal life, what is it? It's narrow. And the gate to get there is narrow. You kind of have to shimmy through it. You can't just boldly walk into it. It is tough. But see, this is why the church has failed in our culture, I believe. Because when we start getting pushback, we feel insecure. The fight of good the fight to fight the fight of good faith we think is is an admirable thing to do, but when rubber meets the road, when a situation happens, we oftentimes in the church shrink back back from the fight. Whether it's on the issue of homosexuality, on the issue of abortion, on the issue of divorce, on the issue, and I'm just throwing these out. Please don't think. I'm going to stand on a soapbox up here. But if the word is truth, and the truth is there are goods and bads, rights and wrongs, there are blacks and whites in regard to what is real, then it behooves the church to stand on that truth even when it's unpopular. It doesn't behoove the church to stand on that truth because it's unpopular and shake a finger of condemnation, but what it does behoove us to do is to speak the truth in love to offer the grace of God through Christ Jesus, and to provide a way into his presence. That's the point. And no matter how you might try to do that, and standing firm, uncompromised in the truth of the word, fighting the good fight of faith, you're still going to get fired at. You're still going to get punched at. You're still going to get knocked down as being homophobic and xenophobic and all these other phobias that are popular today, but tomorrow there will be a whole new set. See, this is the problem. When Jesus says, build your house on the rock, the culture, tell me something, the culture we're living in, the chaos that 2020 has given us, Is it on the rock or is it on shifting sand? Can I ask you this question? 10 years ago, projecting to 2020, would you have ever thought we would be debating and arguing some of the nonsense we're debating and arguing? Some of you say, yeah, well, I mean, some of you might have insight. I think this has taken most of us off guard. Wait, just by the fact that I'm, I'm the color I am makes me racist? Or just by the fact that it's this, then I'm that? You see, the root problem, and I talked about this in my Sunday morning class this morning, is the root problem in the world is not all of these other items. You know what it is? It's sin. The problem with prejudice, the problem with sexism, the problem with any of these isms out there is sin. And we can try as hard as we can as a church to fix the symptoms, but there's a problem. And the problem is we're not fighting the good fight of faith by going to the root of the issue and addressing the problem, which is sin. You can't fight a good fight if you don't know the enemy. It's like Christians are out on the battlefield and we're confused as to who the enemy is. It's the Democrats, no, it's the Republicans. It's Biden, no, it's Trump. It's, it's BLM, no, it's Antifa, no, it's the Tea Party. It's, you know what the enemy is? The enemy is so crafty and deceptive that he gets us focused fighting each other, image bearers of God, that we don't fight him. There is an enemy, and it's not your next door neighbor or the person on the street who's rioting and throwing rocks through windows. Those things are bad, and I'm not dismissing them. But there is an enemy who, if we fight him with a good fight of faith, we win we win church the enemy has us running putting up fires here putting up fires here putting up fire the shield of faith was one of those kinds of shields you couldn't run all over the battlefield with the shield of faith was large and heavy made of wood wrapped in leather soaked in water And Paul tells us in Ephesians six, which Matt talked about last week, is we have to stand with that shield. And what does that shield do? The fiery darts of the enemy hit it and are snuffed out by what? The shield of, what is it? Faith! There was a different kind of shield when you were in arm-to-arm combat. It was small, round, and you could move easily the shield of faith, you have to stay planted firmly and you have to hold it. Do you catch this? We are too busy scrambling around on the battlefield when we need to stay planted firmly in the truth with the shield of faith. Fight that good fight. Let me close with this. Paul says... To Timothy, guard what God has entrusted you and avoid godless and foolish discussions. He was entrusted with eternal life because of salvation through Christ Jesus. And we know in Timothy's early life, in First Timothy, first chapter, second chapter, it was because of the faith of his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, they gave him that firm foundation as he was growing up. And it was something he didn't depart from. And through people like Paul and others in his life who continued to pour into him, he became a godly man, someone to be reckoned with. Probably a little insecure because of his age, because Paul says, don't let people despise you because of your age, right? He also says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity or fear, but one of power, love, and self-discipline. Timothy, step into that. Not arrogantly, but in all humility, understand where you're rooted, who you're rooted in, and who you are. Guard what God has entrusted you and avoid godless, foolish discussions. So the question I have really quickly is this. We, <laughs> some people love to debate for debating's sake, but not every argument or debate leads to fruitful discussion for a fruitful end result. <clears throat> Why do you think Jesus stood silent before his accusers on the day after his arrest when he's standing there or with the Sanhedrin the night of his arrest? Why do you think he stands quietly? Cuz he's just told us like that same night around the table of the last supper as he's talking with his disciples Hey, guys, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if he is the truth, why isn't truth speaking to the enemy who have arrested him on trumped-up charges? Because he knew it was fruitless as a part of that. He stood silent before his accusers. We even have prophecies of that from 700 years before Jesus is even born. Isaiah 53. We see this image, not of a broken man, but a man who just decides at this point, now is the Father's time. And he steps into the Father's will. Do you know what the Father's will was for him? The cross. He prays in the garden that night before he's arrested, oh, Father, please let this cup pass for me. But not my will, your will be done. See, I think there are many of us that need to be doing that. Father, not my will, your will be done. See, the fight of the, the good fight of faith is not about my will, but about his. And his will oftentimes takes us through fiery furnaces. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego mentioned this on Thursday night, too, about in my class. And that I teach on the Bible. And I love when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken before King Nebuchadnezzar, and there's a big statue there that everybody in the community is supposed to bow down and worship, except these three guys won't do it. And so they get tattled on by some of the other leaders, and they come before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, is this true? You won't bow down before my statue. You know I have all authority to throw you into the fiery furnace. And I love their response. And it's not, we we think it's arrogant and pompous. It's just a matter of fact, the way Jesus was in the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings, it was in all humility. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, listen, we're not bowing to your, your statue. There is, and I'm paraphrasing, please don't quote me on detail. There is one God, and we believe he is able to deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow to your idol. We need strong men and women of the faith that are willing to stand in 2020 and going into 2021, not arrogant, pompous, or vindictive, but in all humility and love to say, I believe in a God who is, willing to, is able and willing to deliver me if he will, but even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down to this, even if he doesn't. It all boils down to trust. So again, as our worship team comes forward, let me ask you this question. What causes are you fighting for? What have you dedicated your life to that is of eternal significance? Do you you find yourself fighting in vain for things that, if you really think how they're going to play out, don't amount to a hill of beans? See, not only does the church need to refocus its energies on the good fight of faith, individuals within the church need to focus on that good fight of faith, too. Because if not, you you may find yourself being (laughs) under the employ, ever be it so subtly, of someone who's just trying to get you distracted from the good fight of faith. There are battles... That are good to fight, but the battle that's best is one that leads to the end result of faith. Okay, let me close with this. In James Snyder's book entitled "William Wilberforce," he recounts the time that John Wesley wrote a letter to, uh, on his deathbed, to William Wilberforce. If you're not familiar with Wilber, Wilber hmm, William Wilberforce, not Wilber William Force, it's a spoonerism. Anyway, William Wilberforce, he's the guy that fought his whole life in Great Britain for the abolishment of slavery. There's a movie made about him. John Wesley, who was a contemporary of his and a friend, wrote him a letter while John Wesley was on his deathbed. And listen to what he says to him. Unless God has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and of devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God who opposed you? Go on in the name of God and in the power of His might. If God has given you a task, be not weary. Fight with all that is within you. Be strong in the faith and have good courage. Know that you may have the rug yanked out from underneath you a time or two. You may get sucker punched a time or two. Peacemakers who stand in the gap oftentimes get innocent fire. But stand strong. Be courageous. Fight the good fight of faith. And again, as I do offer, the altars are open. You come to my right if you want to be prayed for. You can come to my left if you want to pray alone. But I'd be remiss if I didn't offer you an opportunity, if you didn't know about this faith in God that I speak of through Christ Jesus. I want you to have an opportunity to have that moment to where you can reckon with God and come to him through Christ Jesus. Maybe you've been skirting this issue. You've been in church all your life and you've been tiptoeing around the issue, being as close to the edge as you possibly could, but you never made that full commitment of faith in Christ Jesus. Today's the day today's the day. I'm going to promise you right now, and this isn't a great church growth promise, but it's not going to be easy when you make that decision. As a matter of fact, there may be things that get a little bit harder for you. And I'm telling you, the fight of faith is a good one. Hold on to that eternal life that you find through faith in Jesus Christ and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the men and women here, the children in this place. And I pray this one prayer, simple prayer this morning, is that not one person within the sound of my voice or within the sound of yours more specifically would leave this place without making a commitment of faith or a renewal of that faith to you through Christ Jesus. Feel the sweet presence of praise in just a moment and in this place, through this prayer, with your Holy Spirit. Bring us to a place of reckoning so that we can receive eternal life, I pray, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.